and welcome to Cinemaker, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 7, Grey's Anatomy from 1996. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And this is a documentary. It's unlike the other stuff that we've seen so far, in that it's not... I guess, I mean, it's it's scripted. It's a performance. It's an adaptation of a stage play. The, I, I want to start things off by saying the fact that this is visually interesting at all is, like, remarkable and a testament to, like, how good of a director Soderbergh is because it's most of it is essentially Spalding Gray sitting on a desk just telling a story about how he had an eye problem. And that's, like, the whole basically 70 minutes he's on screen probably. And the fact that it's interesting at all to look at is amazing. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I had seen one previous performance piece by Spalding Gray directed by Jonathan Demi, which was Swimming to Cambodia. And I think he's got one or two other out there. And basically, it's just him in front of an audience as if you were going to see him at a uh, theater. You know, he's on screen with a desk, a glass of water, and he's telling this story. And he's surrounded by people. And... Well, that is a funny, interesting, and outlandish monologue he's giving in that. It does take a little while to sort of get through because it isn't visually interesting really whatsoever. I mean, he's pretty weird and gives his little hand gestures and it is fun and funny to look at. I feel like he's a good performer, but it does sort of drag. And it was nice to know that immediately I could tell this one was very different than that one in that Soderbergh was going to get uh, visually creative along with the storytelling. And it was going to be sort of chopped up into segments and uh, a little less documentary-like and a little more film-like, a little more like a movie. Yeah, you can really see the challenge that he was looking for, the sort of challenge he set for himself. It's so easy to imagine the really bad version of this um, of this movie. I mean, filming a monologue that's a stage a stage piece and doing it without the live audience, which the previous two versions, not of this monologue, but of previous monologues that Spalding Gray had, had done that were made into films, both used a live audience within the in the movie. So you're basically just the camera's just there watching him as the audience watches him and the audience laughs along. And, and, and this is, you know, he's a, the, a making it, Soderbergh is setting himself up for a real challenge by eliminating that audience, which then, of course, opens up all these other visual possibilities that make it, yeah, the sort of hybrid... Because there are these interviews in it, right? There are, there are these documentary-ish pieces, and then and then this stylized, uh, filmed mon- monologue that you know, which is a, which is sort of a format that he's going to return to or use at various other times. Soderbergh is other times in his career, but it was clearly a real challenge that he set out for himself. So, just to confirm, those interviews at the beginning that they cut back to a few other times. I don't know if you guys watched the 12-minute interview of Soderbergh on the Criterion disc, but he said that he added those in just because the Spalding stuff wasn't long enough to be like a full movie, <laughs> yeah. and so he padded those in. But I'm assuming that Soderbergh shot those. Oh, he actually, no, he talks about it, because on the infrared film, that like because he wanted to like basically just fool around with this type of film and experiment with it. Because at first, I, I wasn't sure, because until I saw that, I thought maybe Spalding Gray had like interviewed them or something, because like, it's never explicit who does that because you never see who they're talking to there are a couple times you can hear Soderbergh's voice um, not ask a full question but respond in the background or laugh you hear him laugh if you, if you know his voice very much at all and we are beginning to because of all these interviews you can catch that it's him but yeah you never hear the question asked of these people you, you only hear their responses so you wouldn't know uh, you know they, they could be stock interviews for all we know based on the, the information that we're, that we're sort of that the film is explicitly giving us yeah, and I like those too because it sort of eased you in a little more. It, it sort of 
was revealing what you were in for a bit. Like it's just it's interviews of people telling you these horrible eye injuries that they had gotten, whether hooked on a fish hook or super glued them shut by accident or what have you. But it's thematic in that um, Spaulding's going to be talking about this eye problem that he has, and it, it, it kind of sets it up as not nearly as bad as any of these other people's in a way, but he's <laughs> going to overreact the entire time about it. And I feel like that was sort of contrast was cool. I felt like it said set it up to be more of like a comedic piece to me that he wasn't to be taking quite as serious or any of that and that you were supposed to kind of laugh at like how extreme he was reacting to all of it like in hindsight right his eye problem was nothing compared to theirs their eye problem made me want to barf I mean, this was so. This is so hard to watch. I, I, I have an, I have eye sensitive. I'm sensitive about eyes anyway. Uh, I've had glasses since I was four. I've, I, I've had a. I had a. There's a guy in this who has an aneurysm, who has a brain aneurysm behind his eye that sort of gives him these terrible headaches, and he. And I, I had that. So um, I am, I am primed to be. I'm like the worst audience for this. I was, I could, I was squirming so. I will never watch those sections again. You're totally right. They were integral to the piece. They they put everything in perspective, right? It's all the context that that you need. I mean, the lady who accidentally superglues her eyes shut. What she's told to do is just wait, and it will eventually dissolve, and her eye will open up, and she'll be fine. And she does. And except for some eyelashes that have been, that will never look the same, uh, she's fine. And you compare that to, to the, I mean, Spalding Gray goes to, you know, Native American sweat lodge ceremonies. He goes to a psychic surgeon in, in uh, the Philippines, is it, right? He goes like to the ends of the earth for this this relatively, in, in context, relatively minor eye thing, which, which would be really annoying and disconcerting where you have one eye that's not focused very well. But also it, it feels like it's a, it just helps put that in perspective, I think. There's very little trivia on the IMDb about this movie. It was only like it was shot in eight to ten days after he was done with post-production of Schizopolis. So they did it quickly. It was like $300,000 or something. Like, it was very quick. That's the only bit of trivia. So I was reading the wiki about it, and there's not much on the wiki either, but there's like a little bit of the critical reception part. And because his is so insignificant, his whole ordeal with his eye, and like, you know, it's this whole story, like, critics sort of took him to task a little bit for that. They're like, it's kind of boring. Like, in the end, like, his thing is not like this big thing. He was made into this, like, crazy world-crossing journey. And so I think that the fact that it is so small, at least in, you know, in critical reception back in 96, made people think less of this movie, I think, or at least less of the story. That's interesting. I wonder if they were a little upset that Soderbergh had just kind of switched film mediums for a minute here and then chosen not to make another movie right away and do this instead. And that maybe, I don't know, to me, it was all about like, the point is that it was such a small deal, but he made such a big deal out of it. It's more just about him as a person and his personality. And if you're along with that, if you want to listen to a guy like this complain about his life for an hour, you know, I feel like that's where you're at. Like, you're either with him or not. You either find him interesting and funny, and I did, or you don't, and you just kind of tune out. Uh, I don't feel like this is the kind of thing you should have to force yourself to watch, you know? It's it's for a certain audience, probably. And that's kind of where I stand with that. I didn't know Spalding Gray from anyone before watching this and watching, you know, researching and 
watching that one before this like a year ago because they were mocking it on Documentary Now. So I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, check out what they're mocking so I can sort of follow along. And that's kind of where I discovered him. Like, I didn't know him from anyone, but I'm kind of a fan of him now. And I, I find it interesting that Soderbergh's a fan of his too. I get this, his sense of humor a bit more as well. Uh, and like kind of the kind of stuff he's into and the type of person that he is from the works that he's working on and the people that he chooses to sort of focus on. Really quickly, the only thing that I knew about Spalding Gray, aside from King of the Hill, which he was on King of the Hill as the guy across the hallway from the young boy, uh, and that's where Soderbergh met him because he wanted him for that, because he'd seen swimming in Cambodia, I think. But the only thing I knew about him, aside from that, was that documentary now, and it's it's really amazing how good Bill Hader is as Spalding Gray. Like, it's this whole movie, I was sort of kind of watching it like it was a character that was being played by, like, a Bill Hader type. Like, it was just, because it's so specific and so close that it just just made me appreciate the Documentary Now series even more. Wow, that's interesting. I, I had so much less context for that than either of you, you know, for this than either of you guys did, having not seen uh, that Documentary Now. I I always used to confuse Spalding Gray and George Carlin. They both seem to be, in my mind, these sort of like comedy guys who turn up in like 90s indie movies in sort of like cameo parts as though there's, they must be kind of famous to somebody, but they're not to me. Now, I, I since have learned that they're clearly not the same person. I mean, I, as a kid, I used to get Robert De Niro and um, Al Pacino mixed up. Now, clearly, they're not the same person. But, you know, so, so maybe it's just a thing that, uh, that, that afflicts me. But yeah, this is, Mike, back to what you were saying, this, is, this movie rises and falls on your tolerance for Spalding Gray. Not as a movie, but as a viewing experience, because it is just going to be him talking at you for an hour uh, plus. And and so if, if he's a person that you um, like to spend time with, then you're probably going to enjoy <laughs> enjoy this. It, it, and if, if not, then then it's not. I don't know that the visuals that Soderbergh brings to it are, would be worth really seeking out if you're not Soderbergh completist or a sort of Spalding Gray aficionado. Yeah, like I just ended up finding him interesting and the way that he was revealing details about his personal life through this story and a lot of it just nonchalantly, like about his mother, especially just that he was even a Christian scientist growing up, you know, like that that was revealed and his family goes back to the pilgrims and uh, the irony of that that one moment where he's like the irony of, you know, being a descendant of the pilgrims and then finding yourself in a Native American sweat lodge to try and find the cure for something like so I don't know that I would watch him sort of uh, star in a whole film that revolves around him, but I do take him in these kinds of doses. I did, I did find him to be quite enjoyable. He is quite a character. And actually, you did just watch a film with him, with nothing but him in it. I mean, that's <laughs> you, you just saw one. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, like, if he was having to, so if we were focused, if he was sort of more of, um, like, a leading man, that's what I mean. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I know, I guess. With, with other with other actors uh, interacting and stuff. I, I'm not so sure he could, he could sort of carry an entire feature film on his own. Own, but he can certainly hold my attention on his own during one of these monologues. And it's also helped by Soderbergh's direction. Like, I think, I, I really do wonder, so I know that this works as just him because it was a stage play that had sort of a long-ish run. I think it ran for a while. I don't know how long exactly it ran for. But it worked as that, and it worked as that well enough to adapt it into a movie. But I think it works better as a movie than a stage play, potentially, because Soderbergh's able to, like, sort of bring you to these dreamscapes and landscapes and, like, have him sort of slowly glide across the screen in front of a backdrop of New York City or wherever. And you have to do that, because you can't really just show a static shot of the stage. Uh, that would be kind of 
for a film, like at home, even less people would be into that than they are into this, I think. But I think that it works well in slightly enhancing the story and just making things, giving a little bit of context and giving a little bit of more, deeper, further action to what he's saying. Like when he's like, I met the Elvis of Psychic Doctor or whatever, whatever that, whatever that crazy specific phrase is. And you see like the behind, like the, there's like the red backdrop with all these like people like doing crazy things around behind it. Like, you know, and that's not there, but it, it intensifies what he's talking about. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. I, it gets, it makes it a little more cerebral. Like it puts you in his state of mind as well, as opposed to just sort of trying to guess how he was feeling. They're good visual cues, and they seem somewhat related in part to what he's talking about at the time as well, which is which is nice that they're not just because, right? They, they, there seems to be some meaning behind the reasoning of why he's gliding across the screen at that moment in silhouette and then sort of pops up in spotlight in the middle of the screen and all those kinds of movements. And, and particularly at the end when, when he goes to that, like, the psychic surgeon, I think, is who the Elvis character was. And it gets, like, completely out of hand because of how just out of control and absurd the situation is. And I do find, like, that did help in a viewing experience to this, too. Yeah, that, that psychic surgery sequence is pretty fantastic. That, that may be my favorite sequence of the movie that involves Spalding Gray talking. <laughs> uh, because it's just, you know, the colors change and, the, you, and, and given the sort of shadow play behind Spalding Gray as you see the doctor put out a cigarette and go to, go to town on these people, combined with Spalding in front of the screen sort of half acting it out as he's sitting there in the chair. It's hard for me to, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure live, that his monologues must have been pretty great. I think that it would be hard. I, I'm guessing having given my my sort of reaction to him uh, and and the extent of his neuroses, it would be hard for me to sign up to watch one of his mo- filmed monologues if it's just him sitting doing the show. I just his as a presence, his neuroses are so, loom so large and so heavy. It's hard for me to relax, <laughs> and not and not in a not in a you know in a good way. And I think that uh, it's because of what Soderbergh's able to do, especially in, in moments like that, to sort of transport you to the place without actually you know obviously going there. Uh, that really bring his you know his words to life. And that's if Soderbergh wasn't directing this, I don't think I would have watched it, the rest of it. Did you like it? Like, did, did you guys like this overall? Like, would you... I did. Because it's strange, right? Like, it's it's hard to... It's not. It's hard to recommend... Like, he's definitely a raconteur, if you want to use a fancy word about it, but I don't know that it's... It's definitely not the kind of movie that I'd want to watch. This is another <laughs> one. This is two in a row that make it really sort of difficult to describe. Like, Schizopolis is the type of movie that's difficult to describe, but, like, I would enjoy... If it's well done by just about anybody who would make that. This... It's a it's a very specific type of thing that I think is well done here. It's just strange as a film. Yeah, well, I wasn't really a stranger to filmed monologues before. I've seen like a couple things like this, like like Secret Honor kind of came to mind, which Robert Altman directed, which is um, is it? I think it's Philip Baker Hall the whole time as Nixon. Um, I think it's like right after he was either right after or I know it's right around the time before he passed away. I'm not sure exactly when it takes place, but it's Nixon getting drunk for an hour and a half in his study alone, recording himself in secret. And it's pretty remarkable. And he's just wandering around getting more and more drunk and more and more belligerent and sort of going insane to himself. So that was kind of interesting. And I've seen a few other ones that I can't really think of at the time, but I was sort of ready for this. Even just seeing the previous, the swimming to Cambodia, which was 
like I said, interesting story, but just like boring because Demi didn't do any of this stylized stuff. It is literally just him in front of an audience being filmed and there's like maybe two or three angles. So I was ready for worse, to be quite honest. And I, I just, I don't know, I just found him to be like amusing and easy to watch. And so I found it to be uh, pretty enjoyable. Now, does, does Soderbergh return to anything like this at any point in his career? He has another Spalding Gray movie. Oh, right, and everything is going fine, right? Which is more, it's, it's, it's after Spalding Gray has, had died, and so it's more, docu- as I understand it, it's more documentary about his life. But I think, okay. but I think they, do, they might include him, clearly they would include shots of him talking in it somehow from previous performances or something. But, but that's the only other thing that I know of that's as, that's as close to a filmed monologue or a filmed stage piece the way this is. Also, can I say that uh, all due respect uh, to Mike, I have to dissent and thumbs down this movie. Uh, okay. <laughs> the only two things of Soderbergh's that I like less than this are the underneath and that and that Fallen Angels episode. Yep, I put it as my fourth out of six too. So yeah. Oh well, it's pretty <laughs> steep competition. I mean, no, it doesn't really touch the heights of some of his feature work. No, it's. I feel like it's a totally kind of different thing than that. Yeah, you know, you're totally perceived. right. And, and, and listen, like I say, I am not at all the demographic given my history with eyes. I, I that I didn't know anything about this. I, I mean, I knew it was a, a filmed monologue, and I knew that it had this George Carlin slash Spalding Gray character in it. And that's it. I, di- I didn't read the back of the DVD case. I, I didn't know what it had to do with eyes. I didn't know what his monologue was about. I had no idea. And so I went I, I went completely, no pun intended, blind into it. And so, so and I was clearly just not the, I mean, just put off by the subject matter pretty drastically. So I, I have to sort of take that into consideration. I just, I think this is, this for me was a more intellectually interesting experience than, than sort of viscerally or emotionally. I, I was sort of interested in how Soderbergh was making it, less so in the in the content. And probably because, yeah, it's, he's so neurotic and so, uh, Spalding Gray is so neurotic and so sort of consumed by his own, by this issue that he's got in a way that feels out of proportion uh, that it just uh, it rubs me the wrong way and I have a hard time being very sympathetic to to him. I'm, uh, part of me wants to say, like, get, get over it. <laughs> just, you know, like, to, or just have the, have the, try the surgery. And like, and, and it was, you're right, the, the most interesting parts of his story had to do with his past and the, the Christian science stuff and, and how that, that clearly influences how he was reacting to doctors and to procedure like it that that deepens everything it, it explains a lot of his a lot of his neuroses if you if you were steeped in this religion where no matter what ailment you had you did not go to a traditional doctor and you faith healed and you prayed away whatever was the matter with you well of course you would be it would be it would be, you'd be very conflicted about trusting you know modern medicine and like i i get that and that is interesting he just i guess he just kind of annoys me and so i i you know i, I that's that's why for me it was just not that, that sort of great, it was a more intellectual experience watching how Soderbergh had made it visual than it was a sort of movie experience. Yeah, I think it's the best version of a movie that I otherwise wouldn't be interested in. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to put it. And so I can appreciate that it's well made. I don't know that I'll watch it again. I'm glad that I saw it, I think. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think I am. Yeah. But this is actually we. I just asked that you know if he's going to ever return to this, and there's the and everything is going fine. But this is actually not the first documentary thing that Soderbergh did, right, Mike? Because I think we've mentioned it a couple times on previous episodes. But even before Sex Lies, uh, the band Yes hired him to be a filmmaker, sort of capture their 9012 live tour, right? 
Yeah, and so I watched it for a little report, so we didn't have to do a full episode or anything. I don't know that it warrants an entire episode, but we could talk about it for a few minutes for sure. There's a couple interesting things about it. First up, I watched the VHS version. There's two versions Ooh, floating wow. around out there. There's a VHS and there's a DVD, and the VHS was just like way less expensive. I needed to own a <laughs> copy of it in some format. And apparently the DVD is just the concert. What the VHS has... For what I researched and read up on, the VHS has these like video effects that the DVD doesn't, and they're they're pretty interesting. For the most part, this is just the concert filmed. Uh, I don't know if he had any say in the wardrobe, but like I showed, I texted you guys a picture. They look remarkably like Spinal Tap. <laughs> like it's incredible. And even when and they they're like incredibly musicians. I'm not an I'm not like a huge Yes fan, but you know Lonely Heart. You know there's no denying that. All good people. There's two or three songs in there. Roundabout. So I don't know if he had any say in in their style, I doubt it, but what he did with it was pretty interesting. Um, any one of these songs, I felt, could have been released separately on MTV as a video. Like, what he would do is intercut it with footage from what seemed to be 1950s school instructional videos, you know, where like Sally and Dick are learning about music and the phonograph and the facts of life, and he would intercut things like that with certain songs at times, and explosions of the atom bomb and all kinds of weird stock footage uh, intercut throughout this thing which which kind of made it pretty interesting and, and I assume that's most of the stuff that's not in the DVD copy uh, maybe the rights or something have reverted within the time or they just decided we don't we don't want any of that but it was kind of uh, fun to watch I wasn't really looking forward to it but I ended up enjoying it do either of you have either of you read anything that Soderbergh has said about this I've never come across his him him mentioning this the yes document yeah yeah so uh, the only thing that I know about it from reading because I, I keep reading these like interviews and whatever with him whenever I can find it whenever I have time they just wanted somebody cheap so they found him hmm. it was it's considerably before sex lies I mean it's four years before I think right it's not like he had a reel so I I was reading today there's this book called Steven so oh, of course. It's, it's called Steven Soderbergh Interviews. You know, it's, it's the perfect name for it. And it's basically uh, up till traffic. It's a major, I guess, or an interesting interview, pretty much one per movie. Uh, so from Sex Lies up through, you know, where we are now in a few movies down the line, there are these interviews, like sort of long form interviews. And it's cool to hear him because it's like, you know, it's pretty much unabridged, I would imagine. So you really get a sense of like how he's talking, what he's thinking about things. And I was reading today, it was an interview about sex lies, and he was saying about how in high school, he made like six short films that he felt were as good as sex lies, but like in terms of like the caliber of where he was in high school. So not saying that they're, you know, great for mass consumption, right. but at least he sort of had something to show these people. I, I don't know, because I mean, he's always been interested in filmmaking. I don't know how Yes found him, but he was just willing to do it cheaply and so i guess he was competent enough that he had enough stuff to show them where they're like yeah we'll give you a shot yeah the only thing i could really come up with is that not just around this time but i feel like for like a lot of kind of cutting edge filmmakers most like a, a bunch of them kind of they sort of came from the music video world once mtv kind of took off you know, you direct a Madonna video or you direct a Michael Jackson video. I mean, Scorsese directed the bad video for crying out loud. I mean, he was already Scorsese, but the 
point is like videos I feel were a good way to get into the industry to kind of break in and you have something that is it could be straightforward or it could be you know very stylistic you could do anything with a music video interpret that song in some ways it could be a short film two and a half minutes three and a half minutes so maybe he was like oh I'll kind of go in that door and break in through the music video route and it only took this I guess like he somehow got this job and moved on and realized okay I could I've done that it's out of my system it's not what I want to focus on to get my career going go off and do like the sex lies thing so I don't know that was one of my theories you know I think we also underestimate um, what filmmakers start who be, who then become you know a-listers that they need to eat too when they're young and when they're starting out that you know there Sidney Lumet has this fantastic book called making movies I think it's called that's sort of part uh, his history making, you know, everything from Dog Day Afternoon and Serpico to, to well, just a whole bunch of other things. And, and he says in this, so it's part memoir and part then advice to young filmmakers. And one of his pieces of advice is whenever you get offered your first directing job, take it. It doesn't matter what it is or why you're, you know, you don't need a better reason to do it. He says after that, you have to have a better reason to say yes to anything. But the first one, you do not need a, you don't need a, a great reason. You, you're, you're being offered it is all the reason that you need because you need to get the experience. You need to get your foot in the door. You need, you need to get started. And, and you know, we, we was talking earlier in the previous podcast about how he wrote the script for the underneath before he decided he was going to direct it. It was a, it was a script for hire job because as he said, he needed to pay his rent. Like he, he, it was a job, you know, he had to pay his bills. And, and I think it's, it can be, it can be hard in retrospect at, when they get to a level where they can sort of do uh, whatever they want, or at least they don't have to, they don't have to prove themselves anymore. Just we sort of retrofit that on the, on the, you know, on the first third of their career when, you know, he's, he's going to be making choices, you know, like the Showtime thing or under the underneath or things that, that he's, that he may, may have said yes to mostly because he needed the money. There's nothing wrong with that. There's that's, that's, with that. that's totally fine. We all got to eat. We all got to eat, which is exactly the same thing you said when I was like, why is Brie Larson and Kong Skull? Yes, exactly. Money. <laughs> yes, yes. Is this okay? Here's another. I think because I, I feel like there's not much to say about this because I stopped p- taking notes like 15 minutes in. I was just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to write down for this. I'm gonna watch it. There's some smaller stuff coming up, I think, like or stuff that I've never heard of at least, which I'm assuming means the smaller, like K Street and Keen Eros and stuff like that. But this is sort of the last stand of Indy Soderbergh for a while because he's from here on out, at least for a while, gonna be either making huge movies or working with huge movie stars and also kind of helping them become even bigger I'm sure like you know with but the next handful of movies half dozen dozen movies whatever we get a lot of Clooney we get a lot of Julia Roberts we've got Jennifer Lopez when she's the most famous that she's ever been we've got the whole ragtag bunch of the Ocean's Eleven movie. So this is sort of the last stand of Indy Soderbergh, at least for a while, right? At least maybe for another six or seven years? Well, not really. I mean, after this, in, in this is 96, and then we're going to get Out of Sight, which is which is studio, but then we're going to get The Limey, which is very much an indie movie, and, and at times a, a pretty avant-garde one. And then you're right, we have Aaron Brockovich in Traffic in the same year, and then Ocean's Eleven, and then Full Frontal, which has a bunch of famous people in it. David Duchovny's in it, and Julie Roberts is in it. But but it's made much more like these indie movies. Like they're they're paid nothing. They have to bring their own wardrobe. They have to do their own makeup. It's half impro- improvisational. It's very very odd film. He's really going to sort of go back and forth quite a bit. Although you're right, it, this is the stretch where he where where he sort of goes 
all cylinders Hollywood in between his sort of the, the indie ones. But I think it's I think it's wrong to say it's he jumps fully into 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 the studio stuff. Well, to more specifically clarify, he's not making any more movies with Spalding Gray as his only star. No, <laughs> true, true. Yeah, I feel like we're getting into like phase two Soderbergh. Like this is where he'll go Hollywood and really make um, his second mark. Yes, yes, yes. Just like be like, I belong here. Like I've always sort of meant to be here, and you guys can't get along without me from this point on. And when he returns to India, I almost feel like it's going to be his choice to say, right. I got to sort of pump the brakes, um, readjust, and just take a look at where I am right now, and you know, kind of get back to my roots for a minute. And then, okay, I'll go on and I'll do like uh, another Ocean's movie or whatever we have from there. Like I'll go off and yeah. He'll, so he kind of goes back and forth down the line. He, he's not had a commercial hit since Sex Lies at this point. Like he's not had he's not had something. Maybe, maybe this broke even Grey's Anatomy. I, I don't know because it wasn't made for, it made for much money. It must have, you know. And may probably did too. But but from the point of view of Hollywood, he has not made anybody money since Sex Lies and Videotape, and that's all going to change with Out of Sight, Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, Ocean's Eleven. I don't know if this made money or not because this cost three hundred fifty thousand dollars, which again is insignificant in the grand scheme of Hollywood. It made like thirty thousand in theaters. I guess it could have made back. 350 on home video, yeah, but um, um, it could have. I, I don't, that's what I'm saying. It, I, don't, I don't think this movie was made no, to be profitable. No, exactly. It might make that money on home video because it's a criterion. But that came way, way, way later, though. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, but I'm just saying they're yeah. expensive. So that's exactly, and that's exactly. I'm, you're totally right, Mike. This is the. This is the. That we're entering phase two because now he's going to make enough movies that make enough money that he then will sort of be able to not to do whatever he wants because there are things he he these days very much laments. And we're getting ahead of ourselves, but since we're here, you know, he laments what the studio system has has become, which is part of why he moved into television so heavily in the the teens, uh, the twenty teens. But it's you know to, to have the creative freedom to tell the kind of stories he wanted to tell that are more about character that could take more risks. All of that stuff he's able to do within the studio system f- within the next few years from you know from the end of Grey's Anatomy um, until until you know the mid two thousands. And that's this is a fascinating. We're moving into a fascinating period of his filmography, a period that contains the movies that most non film geeks have seen of Steven Soderbergh. Most people know Aaron Brockovich. Most people know Ocean's Eleven, right? They don't know Bubble. You know, they didn't see the Good German. You know, like maybe they know they maybe they know Magic Mike. They'll know Magic Mike. Like we'll eventually get to that too. But but we're entering the entering the era, era where most of the movies that people who aren't film geeks know, if they've seen a Soderbergh film, it's one of these next few films. All I know about Bubble is that I was straight to video on demand the same day as theaters, and people didn't like and it. And that was the plan. That that's what it was made to do. For people not to like it, yeah. Well, no. well, sort of. I mean, <laughs> this is a, this is a hundred thousand dollar movie that they. So right, he signed this deal with Mark. We're getting way out of ourselves, so I won't go into it now. But yes, that's. It, I love Bubble, <laughs> but it is a very strange movie, and and it was the whole idea was that he was going to do it as part of his experimentation. He Mark Cuban hired him to make a bunch of movies that were going to be released day and date that were going to be released in the theater the same day they were out on on video on demand and DVD. And Bubble was the first of those. And also one of the last ones too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Although Girlfriend Experience, Girlfriend Experiences was one of those. Oh, I didn't know that. All right, yeah. uh, Mike. Do you have anything? Any last thoughts about Grey's Anatomy? Not necessarily. No. I mean, I I don't think I'm going to go out and search for the rest of Spalding Gray's monologues that I haven't seen or anything. And I don't think I'll 
necessarily rewatch this anytime soon, but I'm definitely glad I saw it. I think if you want to, you know, study the whole scope of Soderbergh's career, you got to watch it. So um, it, it's it goes down a lot easier than some previous stuff that we've seen. And you guys are right. You know, it's probably like third or fourth from the bottom, but it's a really strong um, showing so far. You know, even though they haven't all been extremely popular or worthy of critics, but I feel like there's something in most of them that really make them worthwhile. So it's already pretty steep competition in his filmography, so it's only going to get tougher <laughs> to jockey for position from this point on. Uh, yeah, this is not... Let me clarify. This is not... I don't think this is a bad movie. I think this is a good movie. I just don't care for it. It's just not my taste. Um, but I think it's I think it's really well made. The, the only other things I would say... Is this One of the thoughts I had watching the movie was that he, it feels sometimes, and I don't, I do not mean this to denigrate the movie, although it's gonna, it's gonna feel like I am. I think that it feels, he feels like a proto YouTuber, right? He's like YouTube before there was YouTube, like these people who, who sit in front of the screen and talk to us and tell us some story that they, like a, people who monologue basically in front of the camera. Like it feels like an extremely well done version of, of something like that that you might see today. The two other things came out of the um, interview that Joey that you mentioned that was on the Criterion Disc. One is that he talked about Soderbergh talked about wanting to use this project to recapture the enthusiasm of the amateur. Like they were they were making up half this stuff as they went along and it's something that's been it's going to be so useful later in his career when he is um, on these big movies doing these big studio things and they still very often have a feeling of of liveliness of spontaneity of not quite sure what's going to happen next i think it's going to be he's going to borrow from from the sort of guerrilla uh filmmaking that he was doing with this to to sort of hopefully keep some of that energy and keep these bigger projects from feeling as stodgy as something like the underneath is and the other thing is that uh he mentions in there that for him any for him anyway the the way he approaches these projects is you make one he says you make one big decision one big aesthetic choice about how you're going to tell the story and then everything else is sort of falls in place around that it, it gives you a something to tie everything to aesthetically to figure out how to how to tell the story how to make the movie and in this case it was shooting it without an audience that, that once he made the decision that they were going to shoot this without being in a studio audience to react to, to Spalding Gray they were going to have to do all this other visual stuff in order to, to, to sort of keep us interested. And I think that's, I think it's a fantastic choice. I think it's absolutely the right choice. And I think that um, it's going to be interesting, I think, for us moving forward to see if we can identify what the the one big aesthetic decision is that he's going to make as he approaches these these movies going forward, if, if we can identify it. I think it's a, a really smart thing to do as a filmmaker. And um, he, again, he, once again, he's as insightful about his own work as anybody else is about his work, which is unusual in a filmmaker of his caliber, I think. So be on the lookout for Aesthetic Watch 2017. But I know I like that. I like that. That's good. That's, I think, why I love, like what you are saying earlier, why I love Ocean's Eleven, because it feels fun and loose, even though it's this, like, if that movie flopped, I mean, not that it would, but like, if that movie flopped, like, the studio would lose a lot of money on it. So it's it's this massive, massive thing that still feels like it's just a bunch of guys out back shooting a movie. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Which is great, and I love it, and I can't wait to see it again for like the 50th time <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Exactly. So for all things Cinemakers, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. Follow us at all those places. Like us at all those places. You can see everything that we're doing, other shows in the network, all sorts of fun stuff. Also, if we stick to our schedule that we have set up right now, tomorrow is Halloween, so happy Halloween. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Mancy. And I am Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.